When Kamala Harris introduces herself, she's known to say the same thing again and again. She talks about being a prosecutor. And I got all excited and I said, well, I've decided to become a prosecutor. I am a former prosecutor. I have led investigations and I have prosecuted all types of crime, particular violent crimes. It's more than just a line on her resume. It's this vibe she has. Earlier this year, when this video of her grilling Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh went a little viral, she had this look on her face. Eyebrows arched, chin down, lips pursed. Like, I know he's lying. Are you certain you've not had a conversation with anyone at that law firm? Caswood Spencer. I would like to know the person you're thinking of, because what if there's... I think you're thinking of someone and you don't want to tell us. When they talked about the testimony on The Daily Show, Trevor Noah lasered in on the senator from California. Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body? I'm not, a, I'm not a thinking of any right now, Senator. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a goddamn Kamala Harris brings it, man. For Kamala Harris, being a prosecutor means she's tough. It means she's the boss. It can be a cordial way to say, thank you, next. I only have a few seconds left, and I'll just ask you a direct question. Did you um, watch Dr. Ford's testimony? Uh, I did not. I plan to. I plan to. Thank you. But today, we're going to talk about what Kamala Harris's history as a prosecutor really means. We're going to do that with someone who's usually on the other side of the courtroom. So my name is Lara Bazelon. Currently, I'm an... Lara Bazelon used to be a public defender. Now she trains defense attorneys. And essentially, what I've devoted my advocacy to is fighting on behalf of people who are poor and have no voice, and quite often those are people of color. She does this at the University of San Francisco School of Law. It's just a few miles down the road from where Kamala Harris got her start at the San Francisco DA's office. I've never crossed paths with her, but like so many people who do the kind of work that I do in California, I'm intimately familiar with her record because we've lived under her regime. Laura says going inside Kamala Harris's regime is the only way to get beyond her presidential rhetoric. So today we're going to do just that. We'll look at how Harris fought crime on behalf of the state of California. Laura has some real questions about whether Kamala Harris did it the right way. Stay with us. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Kamala Harris doesn't just call herself a prosecutor. She calls herself a progressive prosecutor. Laura Bazelon noticed it when she picked up Harris's new book, The Truths We Hold. And when she saw this phrase my mouth kind of fell open. Why? Because she's not one. She's calling herself that, I believe, because it's become this very 
trendy, buzzy word with a lot of positive political connotations attached to it. It signals that you are reform-minded. It signals that you are forward-thinking, and she wants those associations. I asked Laura to tell me what a progressive prosecutor looks like. She gave me a few examples, starting with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Larry Krasner came in and he said, I was a former federal public defender and a civil rights attorney, and I'm here to make change. And he proceeded to fire over 31 old guard DAs who were putting in place pretty awful policies, in my view. He started instructing his line prosecutors not to prosecute certain low-level felonies. He's not going to seek the death penalty, which is a big deal in Philadelphia County, where most of the people in the state of Pennsylvania who are on death row come from. There's also Wesley Bell, who just took office in St. Louis, Missouri. Wesley Bell, he was elected in the wake of Ferguson. He is very committed to looking into officer-involved shootings. He, too, fired a lot of the old guard. There are many, many examples of progressive prosecutors, and we are right now at a time when more and more people are running for district attorney and winning on true reform platforms. But Kamala Harris? She's just not in that group. How much do you know about how Kamala Harris got started as a prosecutor? She got started as a line prosecutor in the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. And then she moved on to the San Francisco DA and she worked under a guy named Terrence Hallinan, who was considered to be a reformer. And then she made this decision to challenge him, to run against him, which I think he saw actually as a real betrayal because I think he saw her as a protege. She ran on a platform of this office is in disarray and the conviction rate is really poor and we need to step up our game. Hold it. So she ran against a reformer who had like what, what kind of ideas was he pushing? So he was a former public defender who ran and won as the San Francisco district attorney, and he was considered to be pretty liberal. Now, of course, we're talking about San Francisco. So this is a community that's quite different than many, many other communities that elect district attorneys across the United States. But yes, he was someone who came from a defense background. I mean, you describe a bunch of things that she did while she was in the prosecutor's position where she, for instance, she made it so that parents could be prosecuted, right, for their kids being truant at school. And she refused to look at the Catholic Church when she had some evidence against them. What are some other cases that really stood out in your mind? The cases that stood out in my mind mostly were the wrongful conviction cases where she fought to uphold tainted convictions. And that's from my perspective as someone who ran an innocence project and is an innocence advocate. There are other cases that bother me as well, including her real inability to respond in an appropriate way. For example, when there was a big crime lab scandal in San Francisco in 2010 when she was running the DA's office and 600 cases had to be dismissed, it became clear as these cases were being litigated that the higher-ups in her office were well aware of the corruption of the lab technician whose work was at issue and did not turn that information over to the defense as they were required to do. A judge got quite angry and issued a long ruling sternly rebuking Harris. And her response was to challenge that ruling by arguing that the judge's husband was a defense attorney who had spoken publicly about the importance of disclosures in these kinds of situations and that therefore the judge was conflicted. So she made it personal. 
she made it personal and she, rather than reflecting on what had gone on and what the judge had rightly pointed out to be failures and oversights and worse by her office, instead took on, I think, pretty meritless personal attack. This theme of Harris digging in, even when there's evidence of prosecutorial misconduct, you can see it elsewhere in her career, too. Like, take the case of Johnny Baca. He was convicted for murder in state court in the 90s. And basically, the state's case turned on the testimony in large part of a jailhouse informant. And during the course of the litigation, one of the lead prosecutors in the case actually committed perjury in an effort to secure the conviction, which worked. And then Johnny Baca proceeded to go ultimately to federal court to try to get relief. And at that point, it was up to Kamala Harris as the attorney general to defend that conviction or in her discretion as a prosecutor whose mission is to seek justice to move to vacate that conviction because it was tainted. And she chose the first path and she ran straight into a battering ram of three appellate justices on the Ninth Circuit. And what ended up happening was that they berated the prosecutor that she sent in to defend that conviction. And because the Ninth Circuit live streams by video its oral arguments, and because one of the judges was quite famous, it went viral by at least lowly lawyer standards. And so it became very (laughs) talked about and very embarrassing for Hmm. her. Hmm. So she only really relented when this case got a lot of publicity. That's my theory, and I contrast it to this other case involving a man named George Gage, where there was a lot of misconduct used to secure his conviction. And actually, quite frankly, I think the evidence of his innocence is more compelling than in Hmm. Baca's case, but he didn't have a celebrity judge. His video didn't go viral. And I really feel like that may have been the difference because in both cases, the judges made it clear that they expected the line prosecutor to go back and talk to higher ups in the office and do the right thing. And in one case, she did, Johnny Baca. And in the other case, she didn't, George Gage. Tell me the story of George Gage just from the beginning. What happened was that George Gage was a 60-year-old electrician. He had no criminal record. He entered into a marriage with a woman who had a daughter named Marion, and the marriage went wrong, very wrong. Gage uh, had an extramarital affair, had a child. It was very acrimonious, and Marion and her mom ended up moving away following a divorce, and there were all kinds of financial issues that were going on as well. Years later, Marion brought forward allegations that Gage had sexually abused her when she lived with him as a kid, and because so much time had passed, the only evidence was Marion's testimony. So George Gage was um, indicted and tried, and the jury hung the first time. He was offered a plea deal that would have essentially given him time served because he had been incarcerated. He said, no, I am not a sexual predator, adamantly insisted that he was innocent. There was a second trial He was convicted. Afterwards, the prosecutor, who's now a judge, sought the maximum possible penalty. And in response, the court asked for some documentation that it turned out the prosecutor had suppressed reams of material, including medical and psychiatric records that were quite damning of Marion in terms of her truth-telling ability. And the most damning to me is a hospital intake form where her own mother wrote on the form, my daughter is a pathological liar and she lives her lies. All of this information 
under the law had to be disclosed. It was not. The trial judge read the material and reacted so strongly that she wrote an order overturning the conviction. But ironically, the misconduct of the prosecutor meant that he prevailed on appeal because the California appellate court said, well, the jury never considered this evidence. And so, judge, you can't reverse on that basis. And then the case gradually over time made its way through various courts and ended up in the Ninth Circuit. And where is George Gage now? George Gage is 80 years old. He is partially blind and he is dying slowly in a prison in California. I mean, we've you've made this case for these cases that Kamala Harris, when she was in power, sort of ignored, pushed to the side. We should say that she put in place progressive policies, too. I mean, she instituted vocational training for first time offenders and implicit bias training And she corrected a backlog of rape kits that had gone untested. I guess my question is, was she doing her job, which was to prosecute people to the full extent of the law? People have this real misconception of what prosecutors do. They think that prosecutors and defense attorneys are flip sides of the same coin and that their job is essentially to win at all costs, staying within the bounds of the law. But that's actually not what prosecutors do. They have this twin role, which is that, yes, if they believe and can prove that a person is guilty, they have the obligation to prosecute them. At the same time, if they think that there are significant issues, that laws have been violated, that the person's constitutional rights have been violated, Violated, and God forbid the person might actually be innocent, they have the ultimate ethical and legal obligation to concede error, step aside and ask the court to overturn the conviction. And what you see prosecutors doing across the country is exactly that. And I can talk about specific examples. So for example, Kim Fox in Chicago, she came in as a reformer and she has conceded error in over 20 cases of wrongful conviction. And she hasn't been in office for that long. There are other examples too, dating back to say 2007, when Craig Watkins run on a platform of reform in Dallas County and started a conviction integrity unit. Or Ken Thompson, who sadly passed away after only three years in office, but from 2013 to 2016 overturned 23 wrongful convictions. And instead of standing up in court and saying, for this technical reason or because 12 people found them guilty, I am going to stick by this conviction. What these prosecutors said was, I'm not going to stand by these convictions because they're tainted and because I think these people might be innocent. But I guess what I'd say is our criminal justice system exists in an adversarial system. And she was defending the people of the state of California. Yes, this isn't a binary situation where everything she did was horrible and wrong. That's not the case. You rightly point out a lot of the important things that she did. There's the back on track program that she instituted for first time offenders to give them a second chance that was extremely successful and lowered recidivism. She had implicit bias training instituted when she was the attorney general. She cleared a backlog of rape cases. So it's really important to point out that she did good things while she was in office. And you said her job is to act on behalf of the people. And you're absolutely right. And so my question is, well, is what people want is an innocent person to be rotting in prison because they didn't comply with the technical requirements of the law? Or is what people want to see is an innocent person be exonerated because a prosecutor said, my job is to seek justice and that's the just thing to do here. So what does she do now? Kamala Harris has entered the presidential race. And I wonder 
what for someone like you who's taking a very skeptical view of her campaign, what should she do now? I'm a big proponent of restorative justice, which is about who was harmed, what are their needs, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs. And we are talking about a lot of people who she has harmed, not directly, but by using her power to wield legal technicalities to cement injustices, or in some cases, just simply failing to live up to her responsibility to disclose evidence, for example, in the case of the crime lab scandal in San Francisco. I think, first of all, she owes those folks an apology. And second of all, I think she owes them some kind of act to help them get justice. And so I would hope that if George Gage is able, for example, to pull together a petition for clemency or for commutation, that she would do the right thing and support it. And I think she has taken some steps in that direction. So an example of that is Kevin Cooper, who is on death row in California. He was convicted of a horrible crime, has always insisted he was innocent. His trial was infected by racism and corruption by the police. When she was the AG and Kevin Cooper sought DNA testing, advanced testing to prove his innocence, she opposed it. And then Nicholas Kristof, the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist, published an expose of Kevin Cooper's case, and it went viral. And after that happened, she reversed position and said that she would support DNA testing for Kevin Cooper. And in fact, he is finally ultimately getting that testing. And I think to convince skeptical folks like me, she needs to do more and more and more of that and reckon honestly with her record. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if in the days since your article came out, whether you've heard from friends and colleagues who have talked to you about the sort of circular firing squads that the Dems have been accused of of rounding up. Like, you know, are we are we holding people to too high of a standard? Are we being too, are we tearing people down too soon? Yes, I have definitely heard from many people and been accused of participating in a firing squad. And here's what I have to say about that. I am not going to vote for Donald Trump. I'm going to vote for whomever the Democratic nominee is. But right now we have a chance to carefully vet and find the best possible candidate. And we are blessed with so many people jumping into this race. And I don't see any reason at this point not to carefully consider the record of each candidate so that we can make the most informed decision possible. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. Laura Bazelon is, among other things, a contributing writer for Slate and the author of the book Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. One last rabbit hole I jumped down today, the Fire Festival. You know about the Fire Festival, right? Hulu and Netflix both released documentaries about this disastrous music festival in the last week. But since there aren't enough hours in the day to watch one, let alone both, 
I called up Elizabeth Pears to get me up to speed. When I got to the Fire Festival site, as we came over the hill, all you could see was a, a sea of these plastic white tents really cramped closely together. There were people inside the tents passed out. Pears works at BuzzFeed. It was like something really creepy and eerie from a film. She actually broadcast hours of her own video directly from Exuma, the Bahamian island where the fire Festival was supposed to be taking place. She streamed interviews with one person after another, all of them waiting to escape. Elizabeth is Bahamian herself. It gives her a particular perspective on how this all went down and why an investor named Billy McFarland was able to swindle so many people out of their money. The Bahamas is used to strange things happening and people coming from outside to invest in the country. Sometimes it goes right and sometimes it goes wrong. I think, you know, I can say from the documentaries, it seems as though, you know, the government and government officials, people who were elected, council people, they were seduced. Just like, you know, the other people who worked with uh, Billy McFarland, they were seduced by his energy and his promises and the money that he was flashing. McFarland is currently in federal prison, convicted of fraud. But Elizabeth wonders why he seems to be the only one being held accountable. And so the questions that I was really asking was, if, if you're going to have foreigners come from outside to do something in your country, you have to be doing your due diligence. You have to be checking, who are these people? What are they doing? They're hiring Bahamian workers. Do they have the right you know, uh, permits? How do we know they're going to pay them on time? Um, and so I had so many questions. And actually, I do feel like those questions haven't been answered. And, you know, and I kind of, I guess I would want journalists to live in the Bahamas, as you can hear from my accent. I mean, I'm very British, but, you know, I did grow up there. I don't live there now, but I would have wanted Bahamian journalists to ask, you know, from the other side, how was this allowed to happen? I'm, I'm really not afraid to mince my words on that. And I think that, you know, if the government had really been serious, um, they, they, would have, they would have stopped it a lot earlier. Elizabeth says she actually recommends you watch both Fire Festival documentaries. But I have a different recommendation. You'll get read up way faster if you head over to Elizabeth's Twitter feed, at BizPairs. That's B-I-Z-P-E-A-R-S. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon, with help from Daniel Hewitt. Leave a rating and review our show on iTunes. It helps other people find us. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.